Good morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being out there if you're online. And um, if you're within 25 miles of this place, you ought to be here. <laughs> but I'm glad we have the live streaming for the people back there um, who make it possible for us to have this. Lauren and Joshua particularly, thank you all for what you do. Um, be sure to turn off your cell phone to put it in the stun position. Um, so let's do what we usually do, and let's begin with some silence. Just If you want to close your eyes, you can. If you don't, you don't have to. Just put your feet on the floor and take a deep breath and do what you need to do to be here. Our goal here is to be present and to be open. And um, in behalf of all of us, I give enormous thanks for our ability to be here, to St. Paul's for making this gathering a possibility, and for everything that makes it possible for us to have this time together. And my hope is that you find what you're looking for by being here today. And I'm going to do this one more time uh, just because um, I just think it's such a great thing. And somebody asked me where I got this, and I modified this from a Gallic blessing. And then I took it and then rewrote it and reshaped it. So these are mine, but it's based on that Gallic blessing. And um, it's grace be in my mind and in my understanding, grace be, um, is that the way it begins? Um, <laughs> grace be in my head and in my thinking, grace be in my eyes and in my seeing, grace be in my ears and in my hearing, grace be in my mouth and in my speaking, grace be in my heart and in my understanding, and grace be in my end and at my departing. So, um, I want to ask, now Wayne Herbert is not here, but I want to ask the members of the steering committee who are here to hold their hands up. Would you do that? And I want the rest of you folks to look around and notice who these people are. Because if you need money, you can go to one of them. <laughs> Um, I had a special meeting with these people on Monday because I had and have today a special announcement to make and I wanted to make it to them so that there would be um, no chance of misunderstanding and that we could eliminate any gossip that might get stirred around. Um, and so um, I think some of them feared, maybe a couple hoped, that I would be announcing my retirement from Ordinary Life, but that is not going to happen. Um, so um, I am going, as I told Dr. Bankston and Tommy Williams and now Jeff McDonald, I'm going to teach this class until one of two things happen. Either I physically cannot do it anymore or I get fired. <laughs> and so that's why I have to watch what I say in here. 
But I am going to step back from teaching ordinary life in the way I have for the next couple of months. And um, it takes me about 20 hours to write one of these talks. And uh, I've reached a point in my life where I'm making a major transition. And um, I'm just not going to have the time to do this. So I asked the steering committee if they would help me. I'm going to be here every Sunday. I'm going to be introducing and dialoguing with people. Uh, for example, I've asked Stephanie Warfield, some of you remember her, if she would come back and dialogue with me some Sunday, and we're trying to find a date to, to do that. Um, the reason I'm doing this is that I'm in the process of moving my residence. And um, Sherry and I have lived in the same wonderful house for 35 years. It's a house she helped design. And uh, so there is a lot of grief in just moving away from that. But there's also, some of you know this because you've done it. You've been through a situation where you've had to declutter. <laughs> and um, I have enormously good help here. Yesterday, my son came, and he is like a tornado. <laughs> he opened a cabinet, and I had, you know, several containers full of magic instructions. And he said, how long has it been since you've opened this? And I said, oh, several years. He said, put it in trash. So that's been the process. So... Um, and you are going to hear me say, and I'll keep you updated about how it's going. We're moving from our home in Westview to the Museum Towers just over here. So it's just within walking distance. Um, you, you'll hear me say that I'm doing this move. And <clears throat> the reason for that is that uh, Sherry has been experiencing increasing cognitive impairment. And... Um, I found out in the process of doing this that that's been noticeable to a ton of people over a long period of time. Ironically, I'm never with Sherry when she's alone <laughs> with other people. So I know what it's like for me, um, but um, it's just, I was telling one of you, it's just such an amazing thing. Sherry uh, lost her driver's license a couple of weeks ago, and she engineered finding out where, getting in the car, driving way out West Houston to a place where she got her driver's license and drove back. She can do that with absolutely no problem whatsoever by herself. She is likely not to remember what we talked about 30 minutes ago. So, I know some of you have been through this journey. Um, and... Um, if you haven't, just wait. You will, likely. And um, I have had a ton of people say, how can we help? What can we do? Well, the steering committee is doing that by helping with this. And um, I have got a lot, of, as I said, I've got a ton of help. My daughter and daughter-in-law are with Sherry now going through sorting things. That's why she's not here this morning. And also, I didn't want to talk about her without with her being here, but I wanted to be full, full disclosing about what's going on so that you would know. And uh, Sherry does not have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. We went, she's been in, involved in the Rachel Duty Alzheimer's Study Project for several years, followed by the same doctor, Jeff Bishop, and uh, took her in last Thursday. 
and he said that her exam actually showed she was a little better than this time last year. Uh, but she's going to have another full uh, status exam um, sometime after the first year. They just couldn't do it uh, at this time. So um, if there is something that you can do, I will tell one of the members of the steering committee, and they can communicate it to you. Uh, right now we've got a lot of good help, and um, if there's just a lot of decisions that nobody can make but us, you know, about what stays and what goes and all that sort of thing. So, okay. um, you remember what you've heard from me numerous times. If we're lucky, we grow old, get sick, and die. That's if we're lucky. That's the best case scenario. Otherwise, we get hit by a truck. So I'm, uh, we celebrated 40 years of marriage yesterday, and um, I am graced, Sherry's graced. It may not look like it, but we are so fortunate in so many ways. Okay. And if you want to know something from me directly about this, just ask me. I'll be, I want to be open, and um, I've got my commitment to teach here as long as I can, so... We're going through some choppy waters, but we got a good compass. It's going to be okay. You with me? Yeah. All right. So. Okay. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcomed here. The more troubled our difficult world becomes the more important it is to be involved in the process of becoming centers of freedom and love. And the world we're in seems to be becoming more troubled all the time. The more troubled and difficult our world becomes, the more deeply we need to root this process. And we can't root this process in the way things are going out there or even in our relatively small worlds because, as I just said, they go through turmoil all the time. And these are things we have relatively little control over. So <clears throat> where do we find the grounding so that we can stand, as the old hymn has it, safe and secure from all alarms? My personal experience and belief is that the, the grace that most people refer to when they use the word God, the grace that is available to us sustains us in all things through all times and protects us from nothing. Now, when we get more deeply as we go forward on this journey to using Jesus as the archetype for this, you will see that Jesus was not protected but sustained. So this is what this time today wants to be about. And I am calling it being present to presence. Now, I'm aware that I am not the only spiritual teacher who talks about freedom and honesty and love. Many do. That's a good trinity to work with and work around. 
But the arrangement of words involved in the process of becoming sinners and freedom of love, that belongs to me. It's something I came up with in the late 60s because I wanted to find a way to craft spiritual teaching that didn't sound exclusive and didn't cut people off. So that this teaching could be available to anyone, whether they were followers of Jesus, as I am, or whether they followed Buddhist teachings, or whether they were part of Islam, or whatever. This is non-sectarian. So, <clears throat> every word in this phrase has incredible meaning for me. Involved in the process means not just reading about it or thinking about it. I'm going to say a little bit more about Enneagram later today, but my Enneagram type makes it so easy for me to read about it and then to tell you about books you should read about it. <laughs> Have I ever recommended books in here? That's, that's, that's right. But there's just a world of difference between standing on a balcony watching a parade and being involved in the parade itself. So involved in the process of becoming. There's no fixed status of things. Living things grow. And they die. But that's for another time. But growth on this journey called life means striking camp over and over and over again. Stopping and pitching tent, making fire, going all over again. And often very earlier than we wanted to, and frequently when it is not convenient. Centers means integrated. Um, there's a street phrase for this, getting your stuff together. And though all of this involves diligence and work, I think this is the most continuously labor-intensive part of the sentence. Um, I'm 85, and life is still dishing up things for me to acclimate to, work through, learn from, and so forth. And if life isn't, my unconscious is in the dreams that I have and the judgments I make, frequently confronting me with things that I did not plan for and did not put on my agenda, would not have written as a script, but here it is. Freedom is the trickiest of all the words. Everybody wants to be free. When I was a, a kid, one of the, the phrases that people would say when somebody was trying to boss somebody or direct somebody was, don't preach at me. You're not the boss of me. Don't you tell me what to do. Those phrases are part of our daily vocabulary because we value our independence. We um, are uncomfortable with the fact that we live in a system, though, that often creates a lack of freedom for many other people. Our system was built on servitude. And that servitude takes a lot of forms today that it's just uncomfortable for us to notice, but it's there. On top of this are all the internal constraints, often either denied or repressed, that keep people in bondage. We inherit internalized rules, regulations, prohibitions, and the like from our families, from areas of the country, our race, our gender, our nation, and so forth. 
that we think are factual when in fact they're just as arbitrary as they can possibly be. Um, or, and this is just one small but not insignificant example, a child can grow up experiencing traumatic abuse from an adult without, and, 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 uh, without some sort of intense remedial effort that can mark them and immobilize them for life. So lack of freedom and working for freedom comes in all sorts of shapes and takes all sorts of efforts. And love, I don't know about you, but I'm still learning what it means. I say to Sherry every day, I love you. And I'm just at the tip of the iceberg of beginning to learn what that means. Whether it is explicitly stated or not, every week in here going forward, and then some, we're going to be working to be more and better grounded in our in being able to embody being involved in the process of becoming centers of freedom and love. This is another way of making sacred the already sacred journey. So there is a journey that's not a journey because we're already where we're supposed to be. We just don't often recognize that. Is that paradoxical enough? And then there are those of us who choose to make the journey. So I'm going to invite you to receive the teaching that you get in here today and for the rest of the year as useful information about making this sacred journey that's already sacred. There will be things to be aware of. There will be information that will be useful for the journey. There will be warnings about pitfalls and places to avoid. And as for what you will hear from me, I don't want to make the journey sound easy because it isn't. What I do want to do is to make the journey sound worthwhile. So I, I, I remind you, and you know this, there's nothing out there that supports making this journey. This culture does not support what we're talking about in here. It's quite the contrary. The religion of our culture, consumerism, has a bill of goods to sell you. And you're not okay in that religion's opinion unless you buy what they have to sell. And then, as far as organized religion is concerned, if I had hair, I would pull it out. The... the, the, the version of organized religion that has the loudest megaphone at the moment wants to seduce people into certitude, control, and righteousness. And these are the very things that block love, honesty, and freedom. Here it comes. Without having a daily spiritual practice, one is very likely drawn off the sacred journey path and therefore will miss entirely the emancipation that grace has to offer us. Another one of the paradoxes in doing this life-saving work is it isn't like attending a business meeting. This is supposed to be like a picnic. And so my hope and desire and intention is to know and communicate the person and the teachings of Jesus 
And as such, I am not interested in Christianity. I am not interested in Western democracy. I think these things have their place. And I think it's important that they be conducted with integrity and be true to their founding principles. But Jesus himself never heard of Christianity or of Western democracy for that matter. He did fight the system, but it was a different system than ours. My experience has been that when faith is based on information, as important as that can be, it leads to dryness and then to doubt, not to confident, joyful living. So if you want an overall, general, truly useful piece of advice about this journey, rely on the clear teaching of Jesus that unless we become his children, we will not make it on the journey at all. This teaching is both simple and profound. At its base, it means that if we act as if our mental map is already complete, already reliable, we're not open to anything else. And I confess that often that's my position. We adults are always checking to hear and see if something we hear fits with what we already know and believe or not. And detoxing from this is very, very difficult. So that's the first half of this talk. I wanted to offer some more clarity or reminders about what the journey of making sacred, the already sacred journey, is all about. It's about this ongoing process of being involved in the process of becoming centers of freedom and love and doing the work that we need to do, staying mindful of that. These are things that you can practice no matter what. When you're filling your, your car up with gas, when you're washing dishes, when you're doing lawn work, I'm gonna put you on my prayer list if that's where you are, but. Um, now, what gets in the way of this? What gets in the way of our doing this? You, you understand what I mean when I talk about being present to presence? It, um, <clears throat> I, I wrote that sentence and then I thought I'd try to explain it. So we have, um, since probably the beginning of knowing about the Hubble telescope, moved into a new understanding of the energy field that we're in. And, and uh, that new understanding is called evolution, evolutionary cosmology. And there are two things that we have gotten, we religious spiritual people have gotten from, at least two things, from uh, evolutionary cosmology. And um, the first one of those is what I call the end to cosmological dualism. So God, grace, is not out there. There's not a separation between earth and heaven. That's dualism. We're at the end of cosmological dualism because we now know that 
everything fits together. There was a wonderful article in the New York Times last week, I didn't uh, put it in my notes, about the, mis the, 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 the metaphysics of black holes. Did you see that? And it talked about entanglement, which is where we first learned that word was from Ilya Delio, about entanglement. And, and, and there, there is a way in which things and people and experiences are entangled across space and time that looks miraculous. And I could spend the rest of the time talking about that today. We're wrapped up in this. We are living in the heart of sacred mystery right this minute. And according to Jesus, my guide, he says that it is the intent of that sacred mystery to find expression through how we live. Both those things at the same time. The end of cosmological dualism. The second thing that we get from the uh, evolutionary cosmology is that um, there's the end to individual salvation. I grew up in a religious tradition where the thing that mattered most was saving people's souls. In the evangelical tradition, we had an invitation hymn at the end of the worship service, and people were invited to walk down and accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Let Jesus into your heart, and if you did that, man, things were taken care of. That was it. No more to worry about because once you did that, when you died, your soul would go off to heaven, and you would play golf for the rest of your life or do whatever <laughs> is in eternity or play a harp. Now we know that we are connected to each other. The Hindus and the Buddhists have known this for centuries. But because of the Enlightenment and Western thinking, Greek stuff, we got separated in the body and soul and then things kind of fell apart from there. We're all connected. Everything is connected. And, and if you could have a conversation with the Jesus of Nazareth, he would tell you, he is not interested in your individual soul. I'll tell you later today what I think he's interested in, but not that. I think to teach that is heresy. And, and, and to hang on to it is useless at best, and it's damaging at worst. One of the reasons that Jesus was appealing to common folks, I'm talking about the poor and the prostitutes, whom he said would make it into the kingdom before you, talking to the righteous people, not to you, none of you. <laughs> he said because the, 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 those people were like children, they, none of those people led with their heads. So the group of people that he rallied most against were the Pharisees. And he did this not because they were bad people. They weren't. He did it because they thought they had the truth. They thought they knew what was. So they were uneducable. Now, paradoxically, we can use our heads to get out of our heads, and that's hopeful. For example, who is making this sacred journey that is already sacred? 
And the answer, of course, is I am. You are. Right? But who are you? One of the tools that spiritual directors use is a personality typing system known as the Enneagram. The Enneagram, the word Enneagram means nine types. And uh, when I first heard of the Enneagram years ago, I had some friends in Seattle who were interested in it. I saw the book on the desk and uh, asked what it was about, and they told me, and they were really excited about it. And I said uh, to myself, I don't need that. I got enough. I mean, I, 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 this is not arrogant. I've got graduate degrees in psychology and religion. I've got enough errors in my quiver. I don't need anything else. I do the Myers-Briggs on a regular basis, MMPI and all that sort of stuff. i I got enough. So then I got involved with Father Richard Rohr. And as I got more involved personally with him, he would say to me, Bill, what's your Enneagram number? And I'd say, I don't I don't know. I'm, I'm, he said, you know, I really want you to get involved in the Enneagram. And I said, okay. And I, was, I knew at the time I wasn't going to do it. I was being passive aggressive. <laughs> okay, I'll do it. And I do it. And then, but push came to shove, and he said, you're going to have to do this. And I said, okay. So I bought a book on it, and I read about the Enneagram, and I couldn't figure out what my number on the Enneagram was. And at the time, we had a clergy on staff here, Gail Williford, who had brought a woman in to teach Enneagram here at St. Paul. And the timing was such that I couldn't take the class. So I engaged that person to sit with me personally to give me my Enneagram number. And I guess I'm just difficult to deal with. But after about three hours of talking with me and asking questions and everything, she said, I think you're a five. I said, okay. I'm a five on the Enneagram. That would be my number. And I read a little bit about the five, and there's enough of it seemed to applicable to me. Um, <clears throat> so about 10 years ago, I hit a real rough spot in my personal life and uh, developmental issue, and I, I went to see a new spiritual director, Sister Lois Didion, who is now in Chicago. And um, I saw Sister Lois. Um, I tell you, my state was that when I went to see Sister Lois at the end of our first meeting, she said, I usually sit with people once a month, but I think you should go back next week. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And I love this woman. I mean, she's just amazing. And I didn't know this, but she is an expert on the Enneagram. She teaches classes on the Enneagram. So after we'd sat together about half a dozen times, she said, uh, you familiar with your Enneagram? And I said, oh, yes, I'm an expert in it. <laughs> that is not what I said, but it's an impression I wanted to convey. You understand? She said, uh, what's your number? And I said, I'm a five. She kind of gave me that look. And um, she reached behind her and took this book off a shelf. And she said, um, take us home and look at it, and when you come back next month, tell me what you think. So this is a book, The Enneagram Made Easy, by, by Waggle, that is a book you could give to an adolescent. It's not dumbed down. It might look it, but you can read this book in the evening, and 
If you don't know your Enneagram number, you can find out it's really, really helpful. So I took a book home, and I looked at it, and I read through it, and I said, I'm not a five. I told her when I went back, I said, you know, I don't think I'm a five. I think I'm a seven. And she said, I think so, too. She said, I'm a five, and I ought to know. And she asked me a few more questions, far too embarrassing for me to relate now. And, and uh, I said, I, yes, I think I'm a, a, a seven. And she said, after saying a few other things, she said, besides, you're too much of a narcissist and a smart ass to be a five. It is really good when your spiritual director speaks directly, you know, to, <laughs> to speak the truth. In my very first meeting with her, um, I told her I was having some dreams that reflected my anxiety and anger about dying. And she said, um, how old are you? I said, I'm 78, I think is what I was at the time. She looked at me and said, you've already lived longer than you're supposed to. <laughs> that was one of the most liberating, honest things somebody could have said. She is not one of these, there, there, everything's going to be okay kind of people. This book is 14 bucks on Kindle. You can get it at a bookstore for $13. It's worth having in your library. It is the only book I will recommend today. And if that's too steep for you, you can go on your app store and you can buy this app called Know Your Type which is also very good. It has a test. You can take Enneagram test on the internet if you want to, but I think the book is better. But Know Your Type is useful because it will tell you uh, not only what your type is, but what it's like to live with the type that your spouse is. So no, no two Enneagram types marry each other, except maybe sixes. So I'm married to a four, I'm a seven. And, and I did, once I got more deeply involved in the Enneagram, learn the trick of saying to Sherry when she would do something, I would say, are you serious about that or are you just being a four? That is not a helpful, <laughs> that is not a helpful way to go about doing it. My point is, this is a useful tool in enhancing your experience of the spiritual journey. Because it causes us to pay attention to things that we usually keep out of sight and awareness. For example, as a seven, I have a very difficult time grieving. Sevens don't like to deal with feelings. And so the amount of weeping that I have done in the past seven days has been enormously helpful. So the, 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 the Enneagram helps you look at your head, at your heart, and at your gut. And there are head types, there are heart types, there are gut types in the Enneagram. And uh, if you're a head type, you have a tendency to ignore those other parts. Like if you're a gut type, you might have a tendency to ignore the head type. So it's a way of, being, of helping us be aware of the totality of our personality. One of the things that inspired me to come up with the theme that we are going to be using for some time, making the sacred already sacred, 
was the death a few weeks ago of Frederick Beekner. I've mentioned him before in here. Um, he has been a part of my life through his writings for decades. And um, I think I own everything that he wrote. I've got a shelf. Well, I don't need that more because they're in boxes. Um, I have a shelf of books. I'm getting rid of about 80 or 90% of my library, but I'm taking those with me. Um, somebody gifted me at another period in my life with this book of his, which is audacious when you think about it. Beekner was in his early 40s when he wrote this book, A Sacred Journey. It's his memoir. At, four, at a 44, I think he was, when he wrote this book. It's very young to do such a writing. Um, and, and one of the pivotal points in this book is how his life was shaped by his father's suicide. Um, so I, I'm going to read you a passage from this book. I've read it in here before, but I checked my, when do I repeat myself in here, app, and it's been like three years, so maybe you won't remember. If you do, it's still a good story. So in the book, in The Sacred Journey, he tells them an experience that he had of going to a monastery in um, West Park, New York, the Order of the Holy Cross. And uh, so I want to, these are Beekner's words about this. I had two reasons for going. One of them was that I had heard that one of the monks there was a man of great wisdom and sanctity. And I had questions I wanted to ask him which I've long since forgotten, just as I would have undoubtedly long since forgotten his answers. The other reason was that I felt I needed somehow to be cleansed of the too muchness and the too littleness of my life, to be cleansed as much as anything, I suppose, of myself. I'll interrupt this here to say that in, in one of the one of the values that's held out among religious teachers is that of simplicity. And um, this downsizing I'm going through is giving me a lesson in simplicity. And I've, I've thought about people who live in monasteries and what a simple life that is, simplicity. There's much to recommend it anyway. Back to Beekner. In some ways, the trip was a flop. The monk I had come to see had taken on some special vows and could not be seen, and all the other monks practiced the vow of silence except for one elderly one known as the guest master who had the responsibility to talk to visitors like me, but as the result of a stroke, spoke so indistinctly as to be almost unintelligible. So none of my questions were answered. Whatever they were, I met no one who gave me whatever help I had come for or whom I ever saw again or especially wanted to. Nothing in that sense happened. But silence happened. Silence at meals, in the corridors, the silence of men who, for the love of God, kept silent. And to some degree, silence happened also in myself. Silence not merely is the absence of speech, but is a kind of speech itself. Or something is a prelude to speech, a prelude to hearing someone or something speak out of the silence. When it came time for me to leave, the guest master asked if I would like him to hear my confession. And I cringed with embarrassment. I told him, I thought you confessed your sins to God. Well, sometimes it means more to confess them to God through a priest, he replied. So I told him what I could. 
told him a few of the things I had done that I thought were sinful, childish, fleshy things for the most part, but terrible to tell. And at the time, I suppose he must have pronounced my forgiveness, though I do not remember feeling particularly forgiven and cleansed. But the old man himself, I remember, some special combination of sternness and kindness about him. Would I like him to give me his blessing, he asked. And as much out of politeness as anything, and because I thought maybe then he would let me go, I said yes. So he indicated I was to kneel down on the stone floor. I knelt as awkwardly as I confessed, if not more so. He signed me with the sign of the cross, and he blessed me, saying, you have a long way to go. His only words that I remember distinctly, I had a long way to go. <clears throat> now this is what my work in attempting to follow Jesus. To move from beliefs about to behaviors in moving away from cosmological dualism and individual salvation, this is what I hear. you got a long way to go. But I don't hear those words as judgmental. I hear them as hopeful. I get a long way to go. There's more. Now, hopeful doesn't mean easy. Just want to caution you there. <clears throat> I need no doubt judgment about my own judgments, my own sense of righteousness, my own lack of living up to what I say. But I also hear the hope that there's more to come, there's more to do, and that what matters is the work of freedom, allowing God to be God and allowing ourselves to be who we are in this grace. Nothing more, nothing less. And the way that Jesus animated people in the values of truth, love, and freedom was that he told stories. Some would, would ask Jesus a question. Jesus would answer that question with a question of his own. More often, he would proceed the question he asked by telling a story. And our temptation is to think that because we've all heard these stories, all of our church-going lies, that we know them. That's a head trip. That's a judgment. That's a closed door. We live in an entirely new cognitive world now. And when we put aside cosmological dualism and individual salvation, we're having to rethink everything, or we're getting to rethink everything. And we are in this enviable position of having a long way to go. So one time this very bright guy went up to Jesus and asked him a question. Actually, he wanted to trip Jesus up. And he asked him, what have I got to do to receive this eternal life that you talk about? And this eternal life about which Jesus spoke was not something that begins after we're dead, you understand. We're in it right now, right here. We just sometimes are not aware of that. This is it. And Jesus answered him by saying, well, what do you know already? And one of the biggest things that trips people up in life is that we get to thinking that there's something else that we need to know or have or someplace else that we can be or someone else we can be with that will save us. And there's frequently just enough truth in that to seduce us out of being right here, right now. But the fact is, everybody in this room knows what to do. We just get 
easily seduced away from doing it. So he said, what do you already know that would enhance your life and make the world a better place? And uh, the man in the Jesus story said, well, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. You've got to be involved in the ongoing process of being centers of freedom and love. And Jesus said, bingo, you got it. You just won an all-expense-paid trip to Nirvana. And instead of saying thank you, the guy said, yeah, but who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, there was a man who was going down from Houston to Sugar Land when a gang of hoodlums attacked him and took all he had and beat him up and left him dead, half dead. Now, it so happened that a man from the Jewish persuasion walked by, looked at the guy, and kept on walking. And then a man from the Muslim persuasion walked by and looked at the man and kept on walking. But a member of the Proud Boys, who was traveling that way, came up on him. And when he saw the man, he felt sorry for him. And he picked him up and put him in his hummer. Got his first aid kit out and put some medicine on him. And then he took him to the presidential suite, the Hotel Zaza. And the next day, he uh, took his briefcase out at the, at the check-in counter and took out $100,000 in drug money, gave it to the man behind the counter and said, take care of him. And I'm going to have to go on a trip, but when I come back, uh, he'll, look here, take my American Express card. If there's anything else he needs, just put it on there and I'll take care of him when I come back. And Jesus told that story and then said to the smart elegant young guy, I said, uh, so who was, uh, who was the neighbor to the guy who was beaten up by the hoodlums? And he was trapped. I mean, he had to tell the truth. He said, well, the man who showed compassion Jesus said, if you want eternal life here and now, you go do the same. So in light of evolutionary cosmology, we have a chance to see that loving the neighbor is not a commandment in the way we usually think of commandments. We're now learning, or we have a chance to learn, that spiritual commandments are descriptions of reality. Right? So if I said to you, thou shalt not swim the Atlantic Ocean, it's not that you shouldn't do that, it's that you can't. It's a description of reality to say that we do love our neighbors, whether that be the person in the same room with us, the same house with us, the same office with us, the same country, city, state, globe, as we love ourselves. And you can't love somebody you don't know. That's number one. You can't love someone you ought to know. That ought to be one of the payoffs of having a daily spiritual practice. It's a great story. One of the things I think is really neat about any true spiritual path is the way it takes these really big philosophical questions and turns them into these deceptively simple, nitty-gritty answers. The question that is behind all we do in our work together is the 
biggest, deepest question of all. What is life all about? How can I find meaning in life? And the answer ends up being what you do to a guy in the ditch by the side of the road. Now, I want to say one more thing about this. I think we need to remember who told this story. We need to remember who has been a good neighbor to us. Going down into the ditch by the side of the road for us. That despite the terrifying complexities, the perplexing dilemmas of the life Jesus lived, he lived it, pouring out the love of oil and wine on our wounds, his grace sustaining, forgiving, encouraging us. In his life, he shows us what grace unwrapped looks like. For him and for us, going through life with hands open instead of clenched fist. Always vulnerable to the needs of others. Always enfolded in the love of God. He shows us the way to inherit life. By his style, he answers that big question of ours. He shows us the way. And again, the way to life is not the way because Jesus followed it. That's Christian exceptionalism. Jesus followed it because it's the way. So what, what, what must we do to find meaning? What is life about? Where is God? How are we able to be present to presence? Well, once upon a time, a certain man was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves and ended up in a ditch by the side of the road. And the rest of the story, you have to finish yourself. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week with Barbara Robertson teaching our class. I'll introduce her, and we'll be on our way. Thank you.